Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And Anna, Mm -hmm. is it still Spooktober? Of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) Even if it'll actually be November when we release this episode, it's always spooky time in our hearts. So today, we're talking about curses. Yes, and right off the bat... We are doing our due diligence as good archaeologists and good disseminators of facts. So let's take a moment and talk about King Tut's tomb for just a second. Mm -hmm. So I hate to break it to you guys, but there was no curse. No curse was put upon it, and there was no curse engaged when the tomb was opened. No no curse anywhere. But Amber, the movies said. I know. So there were like all, you know, eight people died from the curse or whatever. Um, so a study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were open, only eight died within a dozen years. Uh, and so the highest profile death was that of Lord Carnivon, the guy who financed the, the excavation and the whole expedition. Yes. Um, and so I think the greatest curse that he suffered from is his full name. <laughs> um, yes. George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnivon. Yes, quite. Mm. Yeah, so he ended up... Uh, he died a year after the tomb was opened, but first of all, he wasn't in super great health when they started the project, and then and then And he, then he traveled there, and he got sicker, and then he had a bit of a mosquito issue. Yes. Um, and so this, this the, the idea of the curse was promoted by no less a prominent person than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who also out of his commitment to facts, wrote a book explaining how fairies were real. Yeah, he was a pretty devoted spiritualist and yeah. uh, sort of believed in the afterlife and all that. Yeah. So, so um, Howard Carter, the excavator himself, he died at the age of 64. He died from cancer. Definitely um, non-cursed cancer. But he he did blame the curse, but I don't know if that was a joke or not. Um, so do you know who the amazing James Randi is? No, he's he is indeed amazing. Um, James Randi is a like sleight of hand guy and a debunker. And oh, okay, he does like he's a a very famous skeptic. Okay, and he has a society dedicated to both debunking things but also finding the very fascinating truths behind them. He says, quote, this group died at an average age of 73 plus years, beating the actuarial tables for persons of that period and social class by about a year. The curse of the pharaoh is a beneficial curse, it seems. All right. Yeah. And also um, the first the first mention of a mummy's curse mm-hmm. um, was in Louisa May Alcott's um, 1869 story. Really? Yeah. Um, little mummies. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, it was called. <laughs> oh, it you was, got me! You got it me! Was, <laughs> uh, it was it was called "Lost in a Pyramid" or "The Mummy's Curse." I don't think she ever published it, but that's the earliest instance. But it was very much like a, a romantic and then Victorian idea. Yeah, we've so, already talked about how much Victorians love their mummies. Oh yeah, but so yeah, sorry, no curse, and now yeah. we can uh, lay that to rest. All right. Well, good, because I'm very excited to talk about my first curse story. 
I am going to talk about something that I first heard about on the fantastic podcast, The Allusionist with Helen Zaltzman. It's on the Radiotopia Podcast Network, and I highly, highly recommend it. I learn something every time. It's really funny. Soothing British accents. It's great. Um, so, Amber, uh-huh. grab your rubber ducky because it's got bath it. time. Yes. And also curse time. Okay. So I'm going to get to the curse part, I promise. But first, some background. Uh, some some background. Background. Specifically, we are in the now British city of Bath, or if you're from there, Bath. I found a lot of this information in a great article on the Folklore Thursday website, which is another thing that I would recommend listeners check out. But not before I tell you about these baths. <laughs> yeah, don't don't turn it off and go there. Stay Listen here. Listen to Anna. Stay here. Do that after. Bath uh, was once a Roman city, and then before that, it was inhabited by the Celts that the Romans then overthrew. And the Romans called what is now Bath Aquesulis. So what was so special about Aquesulis? First of all, it has a great foundation myth. So there's a legend that Bath was founded in 860 BCE when Prince Bladud, father of King Lear, so like the Shakespeare one, I think. What? Yeah, I guess King Lear was a real king. So oh. so, um, <laughs> so Prince Prince Blotted, he had leprosy, which is not popular. So he was banned from his court, and he was forced to look after pigs, which seems seems harsh. Um, the pigs also had a skin disease, though. So they all had their pox together. He had he had leprosy. The pigs had pig pox, but one day. Bladud and his pigs were wandering around what would eventually become Bath, and the pigs found a lovely place where hot mud bubbled up from the ground. And they did what piggies do, and they wallowed in it, and then they were cured of their piggy pox. And the prince saw them do this and thought, well, and he followed their example and was also cured. So he went home, became king, and then founded the city of Bath at the site of that magical spring. And shout out to friend of the podcast and also friend of me, Laura, for, uh, she's from, she's from Bath, and she, uh, tipped me off to that story. So thanks, Laura. Hi. Okay. Yeah. So that's the, that's the foundation story. And in the ancient Roman world, and also into today, Bath was a place for individuals to take the waters, to soak in the healing properties of its mineral-rich springs that rose naturally to the surface. And Romans loved their baths. Every major Roman city had a public bathhouse, usually built by one emperor or another. And these bathhouses were usually pretty complex feats of engineering, with furnaces running underneath the buildings to heat the various pools to the right temperature. So there was a hot pool, a room temperature pool, and a cold pool. And then for a small fee, if you were a free Roman citizen, you could take a dip whenever you wanted, usually in all three. And then you'd have a -a scrub-a-dub, and then you'd hop out, and you'd get oiled down by a slave, which sounds great, minus the slavery. Uh, Back to the city of Bath, where probably there weren't as much, you know, like furnace engineering things going on because it's a natural uh, sulfur hot spring. Bath was a cult site for the worship of the goddess Sulis Minerva, a mistress of healing and justice. My two favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) She was herself, Sulis Minerva, likely a product of a phenomenon called Interpretatio Romana, which is just a Latin-y way of saying that the Romans conflated pre-existing divinities with their own equivalents. So the Celts that were in the area before the Romans showed up, they had their god Sul associated with the mineral springs, and then Minerva got crowbarred in there. 
and Sulis Minerva. The Romans had a very particular way of reaching out to Sulis Minerva about their bathing-related issues. Not just bathing-related, but at the baths. Normally, if you, in, in Rome, if you wanted to get in touch with god or goddess, um, you, could, you could pray. But if a worshiper in bath had a specific problem, they might request aid from Sulis Minerva on a curse tablet. So, since most regular folks in Bath were probably illiterate and couldn't write in teensy tiny script because these curse tablets were about the size of a saltine cracker, Whoa. they would... Yeah, they're, they're very small. Well, I mean, Sulis Minerva has great eyesight. Yes, Minerva <sighs> is eagle-eyed. That is her attribute. Yeah. She has excellent eyes. <laughs> People would visit a scribe. So then, on a piece of lead or pewter, the scribe would write a request for Sulis Minerva or another god to avenge the wrong done to their client, whatever that was. So they could punish someone who perpetrated the crime, and if something was stolen, they could pray for the goods to be returned to the rightful owner. The supplicant would then take that cursed tablet and toss it like a lucky penny into the waters of the baths. So, interesting sidebar about these tablets. All but two of them... There have been about 130 uh, removed from the baths at Bath, and all two of these are in Latin, and the two that aren't use the Latin alphabet, but in a language that has not yet been deciphered. So scholars think that it may be the first instance of a written pre-Roman Celtic language in oh, Britain. that's so cool. I know. Like, I want to I wanna all of a sudden, like, learn, <laughs> learn language stuff and, and decipher it. Like, I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do everything, Anna. Um, so thief curses would have been especially relevant for the baths at Aquisulis because these were public bathhouses and like you do at the gym, people left their clothes and possessions when they went to clean up. And unlike the gym, there weren't lockers, just cubbies. So a lot of the cursed tablets that have been recovered from the baths deal specifically with owners of goods cursing the thieves that have stolen them. Keep in mind that during the Roman occupation of Britain, Bath was a remote province without much of a police force. If you could afford guards or slaves to protect your belongings while you had a soak in the tub, great. But that meant that you were a rich person and probably a small part of the population. So most people would have just left their things. And in return for Sulis Minerva's help, the devotees would, pr would promise the Divine One a gift, maybe even the stolen item itself if it was returned to them, in which case why not just leave the stolen item like... You're not going to have it anyway if you give it to Minerva. But clearly I don't understand how that sort of thing worked. If you are interested in Roman inscriptions, here is a great website for you that I found. Well, it is specifically of Britain. Britain. <laughs> yes, it is romaninscriptionsofbritain.org. And it's really great, actually. It has um, very nice high-resolution pictures of lots of inscriptions found in Britain and has their translations, if, if they have been translated, and some information about them. So... Check that out if you're into it. If not, let's keep going. Okay. So some translations of the cursed tablets. One Docilianus asked the most holy goddess Sulis to, quote, curse him who has stolen my hooded cloak, whether man or woman, whether slave or free, dot, 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 because the, the tablet is incomplete. Here's another. Decimitus has lost two gloves. Does not say if it was a matched pair. Uh, he asks that whoever stole them lose his mind and his eyes in the temple of of Sulis Minerva. That makes it sound like it's like two right gloves. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I know. He he has lost two gloves. Like, oh, not like again. Two, two pairs are ruined now. I know. Oh, my gloves. I hope someone loses their eyes. <laughs> 
a guy named Salinus goes even further in his request. <laughs> Salinus to the goddess Sulis Minerva, which I love that tone. It's like, take a message. <laughs> <laughs> I give to your divinity and majesty my bathing tunic and cloak. Do not allow sleep or health to him who has done me wrong, whether man or woman, whether slave or free, unless he reveals himself and brings these goods to your temple. Finally, one cursed tablet asks the goddess to render a theft's perpetrator, quote, as liquid as water. And I'm not I'm not positive about this, but I, I think that might refer to um liquidity of the bowels. <laughs> so unpleasant. So since wealthier bathers would have likely, as I mentioned, had some sort of guard on their possessions, scholars have concluded that many of the supplicants may have been poor or of a relatively low social status, and since they couldn't afford guards, they may find their possessions stolen upon returning to their cubbies in the bath, and so thus the appeal to Sulus Minerva. And curse tablets were widespread over the Roman Empire. It wasn't just a phenomenon that, that popped up in the city of Bath because of the high cloak-stealing rate. So here is one more set of curse tablets that were um, sitting in the Museum of Bologna, in the City Archaeological Museum, and they were recently rediscovered. Unfortunately, their provenance is unknown. But they've been translated, and researcher Celia Sanchez Natalias of the University of Zaragoza in Spain, Zaragoza, Zaragoza, found two particularly nasty examples. Yes. <clears throat> Quote: Destroy, crush, kill, strangle Porcello and wife Marilla. Their soul, heart, buttocks, liver, and then the rest of the tablet is missing, um, and that dates to the fourth or fifth century CE. And Sanchez Natalias believes that this is a curse directed at a veterinarian and his wife, perhaps for the death of an animal. I mean, I get it. I get that. Yeah. The second curse, uh, one of the only known examples, shockingly, directed at a Roman senator. I mean, you'd think, but maybe politics were different back then. Um, this one reads, quote, crush and kill Fistus the senator. May Fistus dilute, languish, sink, and may all his limbs be dissolved. So that's curse tablets. And now we have Twitter for pretty much the same purpose. And I think we should go back to tablets. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so my curse of choice is a more recent example. So both with some contemporary deployments as well as historical and prehistoric attestations. So let's head to Australia. Let's go. Oh, no. <laughs> so people have been living in australia for at least fifty thousand years and up until captain james cook arrived in what he called botany bay in 1770 the original inhabitants of the continent had plenty of time and opportunity to diversify so there are more than 400 distinct australian aboriginal peoples that have been identified and they're distinguished by names designating their ancestral languages dialects or distinctive speech patterns. And historically, these groups lived in three main cultural areas, the northern, southern, and central cultural areas. But since the arrival of James Cook and subsequent colonization, people were, were relocated. I mean, pretty much the, the equivalent yeah. of what reservations yeah. in the So US. it works like reservations, and it also was, uh, yeah, it was means as a tool of assimilation. People now tend to live either in cities or in rural communities on the edges of what were once their uh, ancestral lands. Okay. 
so the sort of delineation of northern, southern, and central cultural areas has is is blurred. Okay. Um, okay. So, as for the term Aboriginal Australians, it's a legal term that's used by the Australian state and federal governments. And so that term includes the populations that preceded colonization of Australia, Tasmania, and the Torres Strait Islands uh, between Australia and Papua New Guinea. And there's some debate about the use of indigenous versus aboriginal versus neither, since indigenous has been co-opted by some nativist white populations in recent years, um, which isn't what that word is supposed to be used for. And uh, But both of those kind of diminish or erase identity of individual groups. And so the biggest problem I see in these debates that I've been reading about these past few days is a lack of representation of what Aboriginal Australians themselves would prefer to be called. So, so here I'm trying to be as specific as possible and identifying the groups I'm discussing wherever I can. For the most part, we're going to be hanging around in the northern and central areas for this. Okay. And so now I'm going to tell you about the Kredicha Man and the practice of bone pointing. <laughs> yeah. So the word Kredicha itself comes from the Arante, a network of groups in Central Australia. The ceremonial executioner, the Kredicha Man, ca- carries out a sentence against the convicted individual. So this process is is begun when the Kredicha Man straps on a pair of shoes called interlinea which are made of feathers, usually like emu or cockatoo feathers, and human blood woven with human hair to kind of a mat and designed to leave no tracks. How? Because I, I think the idea is that like the, the feathers kind of, oh, like, you don't have footprints. It's like snowshoes because yeah, yeah. it like keeps you from sinking into whatever. Yeah, I okay. think that's the idea. And European accounts tell of further preparation wherein a hot stone is applied to the little toe, which is then intentionally dislocated and poked through a hole on the side of the shoe. But a large number of Kredicha shoes, so they're called interlinea, but white people call them Kredicha shoes. As as we will come to see, people go nuts about these things and like buying these things. (laughs) Yeah. So a large number of Kredicha shoes are in collections and most of them are too small for feet and or they don't have the small hole in the side. And it's speculated that due to the difficulty of their construction, many of the shoes are made as practice rather than be worn. Sure. Okay. So the, the, the shoes are less functional shoes and more emblematic shoes. Mo- model shoes. Yeah. And um, now we get to the cursing. Good. So a pointing bone um, has... Several different names, but um, the most commonly used I've seen is kundela, and it's made out of. It's usually made out of bone. Um, I I saw it's, that it's you think t- that a pointing right, bone. Right, I would saw be. that it's sometimes made out of wood. So okay, but I'll it's shut up. it's usually made out of um, kangaroo, emu, or even human bone, um, and it's filed to a point at one end with a cord of human hair affixed to the other. And so when the Kredicha man spots his intended target, because, you know, he can sneak up in his emu in and his... human blood shoes. Oh, they're sneaking um, shoes. Okay. They're, yeah, they're his sneaking shoes. And so he spots his intended target and then loads the bone with a curse. Okay. So Charges, like, charges it up. Yeah, charges it up and then 
and points it at the victim and sings the victim. So the idea is singing the curse. And so the idea behind it is that the victim is frozen with fear long enough for the curse to be deployed. And then death follows within days or weeks of being sung. Or as it's described in the Wikipedia entry, being boned. Cool, Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah, good job. And so I mentioned a minute ago that a lot of credential shoes are in collections. And I found a few examples that teach us a, a whole lot. In 2005, in San Francisco, uh, Bonham's Auction House, um, Bonham's is one of the major art and antiquities dealers in the world, Um, they sold what they call, quote, a rare and unusual West Australia Aboriginal ritual kit. It came from the Balgo Hills community, uh, which I looked up. It's in northwestern Australia, and it's now just called Balgo. Okay. Um, And so the kit comes with Kredaicha shoes a pointing bone, and a turunga, which is a ceremonial object, which I guess during the Kurdaitra ritual, um, you would like put it between your teeth, but it's, it's to kind of strengthen you and, and keep you safe. And that sold for $998. So somebody bought it. Yep. And then on a 2014 episode of Antiques Roadshow in Birmingham, um, Alabama, uh, and I watched the clip uh, for this, so you, I'll include the link so you can watch it. Um, an American woman shows off some of her archaeolo- archaeologist grandfather's finds that he had picked up from all over the world. Uh, so her, hey, hey, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, hey, don't, hey, don't do that. So when he passed away, she inherited all of them. Okay, and so she, they have like tacked up on the board um, a handful of things from all over Australia, and including. Um, what they call it, like a one-way boomerang, which I think is it's a Kylie, like a throwing stick. Yeah, it's it's a Kylie. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's one of those, and then there's um, an adlatl and like a couple other things, um, and then the big ticket items: a pair of interlinea shoes and a kundela bone. And so the appraiser, a gentleman who specializes in ancient art, on the show, all of it. Both all of it and also including these 19th century objects from Australia. Um, mm. So I clicked mm. I clicked on the ancient art category and I just was like, <laughs> and like looked at all the things that they had appraised all by this guy. He proceeds to discuss these 19th century objects by saying that among traditional indigenous Australians, there is no such thing as a belief in natural death and talks about how all deaths are a result of some kind of foul play, spiritual otherwise. And then like on their deathbed, they'll, whisper into the ear of who's around them, who, who cursed them. And it sounded like really familiar to me. And then I came to the chilling conclusion that I think they just read Wikipedia on (laughs) Antiques Roadshow because it's like the, it's like straight up the Wikipedia entry for, um, He, he brushed up right before they recorded. And so Wikipedia is, is like written by anybody, but like edited by like total pedants and so like wikipedia has like a self-correcting nature so you have right. people who and are it's experts often, coming in and being like excuse me no and then correcting it which is great and it's often very useful especially for finding primary sources if they are cited yeah at the bottom and then you find those primary sources and then you read those and then you can go from there unfortunately in the case of kredicha uh the primary source that's used 
1899 ethnography written by Mm. Baldwin Spencer and F.J. Gillen, the native tribes of Central Australia. I will now read an excerpt from that same chapter. I will prepare to be uncomfortable. Our impression with regard to the Kredicha is that at the present day it is merely a matter of myth, though at the same time every native is firmly convinced that some other native does actually go Kredicha, and is quite prepared, as a general rule, to allow others to think that he himself does. He will even go to the length of suffering the pain of having his toe dislocated in order to prove that he is a genuine Urtwa Kredicha. To those who are personally acquainted with the Australian native, there will not appear to be anything at all improbable in this. He delights in mystery, and for the purpose of standing high in the estimation of his fellow men, will submit to inconveniences and discomforts which perhaps appear to a white man to be ludicrously out of all proportion to the advantages to be gained, but to him it is far otherwise, and the mystery which surrounds and lends importance to the individual who has actually, for example, Goncrodicia is just what appeals to the imagination of the Australian native. Well, I didn't like it. So that's not great. So like maybe we shouldn't be using these guys as the central source of information on Arante and other spiritual and social practices. <laughs> if nothing um, else, it's a little out of date. Yeah, yeah. And so when I found this, I got super scared that I had fallen into another Wendigo trap <laughs> like I did last week. Uh where I'm just like, oh, great, cool. This is something that's just like projected onto them by like the colonizer. But I came across some contemporary medical and anthropological work that both corroborated the disbelief in death from natural causes, and albeit more respectfully. Good, 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 good. Cool, cool. A 2016 article in the journal Forensic Science, Medicine, and Pathology entitled Death and Sorcery Discusses, yeah. yeah, right. Sorry, this is a great title. Yeah. <laughs> um, discusses several cases in which forensic, which in Australian is called coronial. Like coroner? Yeah, yeah. And so I listen to coronial. this podcast. I listen to a, a podcast, The Austra- it's an Australian podcast, um, and they're talking about like a coronial inquest. And like I kept thinking like, are they coronal saying? like crown? And I was like, they're getting the <laughs> queen involved. And it was like this weird thing where I was like, wait, what? But no, it's like a forensic examination. So like fun was fact it? about the Australian language. <laughs> I mean, my first instinct was, are they just saying colonial, but like Scooby-Doo? <laughs> coronial? So, these, <laughs> so forensic practices like um, an autopsy uh, or... Um, other like running tests, like toxicology reports and things, mm-hmm. um, they reveal medical causes of death, like overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, system, um, stress reduced fatal asthma attacks. <laughs> you said stress reduced. <laughs> God, that would help me out if I just had a fatal asthma attack. That would limit my stress. Stress induced fatal asthma attacks, um, or extreme dehydration. Like fatal dehydration among cursed, cursed individuals. Wow. Um, and so it's not just in Australia. The, the he the author um, cites cases elsewhere, like elsewhere in a couple examples in East Timor, and then makes reference to death by curse in other cultures. If you do a coronial inquest um, on someone, you can and there's. Like the toxicology report shows that they didn't overdose on anything. But if you check their electrolyte levels and you check you, you check other things, you might see like, oh, they had an aneurysm. Oh, like they're, 
was an individual who was cursed and then um, had a panic attack, but had an underlying asthma condition. No, and, and it triggered a fatal attack. A fatal asthma attack. As, or perhaps they were so in such an emotional state from being cursed that they refused to eat or drink. Right. And, and so within a week or two, they, they just died. And so these these sorts of things that medically you'd say, well, it's not a curse. This is, but if you are looking at it from the perspective of, well, they cursed them to death and then they died, so it seems like the curse is pretty effective to me. Uh, it sort of like shifts the, the sort of the thinking around it. Yeah. Um, and the author, who it appears themselves is a, a medical professional, shares their own personal experience with a patient in Arnhem Land in Northern Australia. So a young young, uh, yeah, a young Yongu woman uh, was admitted to the hospital who was who was very ill. But when they did a battery of lab tests, it said that they showed that she was just really dehydrated. And so she was refusing to eat or drink, but they gave her intravenous fluids. And eventually she was released without a diagnosis other than dehydration. dehydration. Yeah. Um, but then one of the the elders in her community came forward and said that she had been sung. Okay. And, and so that was the the one um, experience that this, this doctor had had. And it's something that is included in um, like culturally responsive and like culturally sensitive um, training modules for oh, okay. like medical staff. And so it's something that like be aware of this, it might yeah. turn up. Yeah. And so this is something that nurses and doctors are taught to look out for. And to consider when when trying to figure out um, what's behind the symptoms that a patient is producing. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so um, among the world Piri, uh, the Kredaita is not a human. It's not a human. It's not a ritual executioner, but instead a monster itself. Um, and so when the world Piri lived in the desert... Uh, it just lurked out there. And if you happened upon it. Plenty of room to lurk. Yeah, plenty of room to lurk. Uh, but then when the World Piri were relocated, uh, and like this is the world, like relocating people to like Aboriginal groups to like, missions and town and, and like towns. The last group, the last uncontacted group was contacted and then relocated in 1984. So this that isn't is like shockingly recent. Yeah. So they like went out and like had to find them. They're like, there's somebody. Why? So, why do they have to find them? You know why? I do. <laughs> I do. I'm not happy about it, but I do. Yeah. So when the world Piri were relocated uh, and they were moved in, so they, a lot of world Piri live in Alice Springs, mm. which is that main um, service town. in Yeah. So right like before central, the, um, Null Arbor, I think, right before yeah. it just, there is nothing. Yeah. So folks live there or they live in their rural communities. And so when they moved, the Kredetia followed them, like tagged along. Um, and just as their life has, just as the world period's life has changed and like has shifted and evolved, so has the life of the Kredetia, where now they just like lurk outside the camps and you know they speak english their own language is thought to be like one of whistling or like they can communicate with birds um but they speak english they like stay in hotels they like they're they're on the move what? really 
Yeah, yeah, like the and so that it's like a very like real fear of something that will kill them. Many deaths are perceived to be the result of sorcery or monstrous action. So it's less a like that guy cursed me though that guy cursed me sort of like blood feud. Like uh, it can actually it can be something non-human, just like the, out of nowhere. Yeah, and so Kredita play a double role in this regard. They're clearly blamed for some deaths. And the fact that they often lurk around rural Perry habitation and attack individuals as well as groups embodies a general threat to rural Perry lives. And so they both cause and exemplify the, the fears that rural Perry people have about the unacceptably high numbers of deaths in their communities. And the, the author goes on to say something that I found like really compelling. Like when you think about the disproportionate rates of poverty murder, incarceration among um, indigenous Australian populations compared to the white population in Australia. Um, She says, quote, as the lives of rural Piri people transformed over the last century with experiences, first contact, colonialism, and today's neocolonialism, Kodaicha followed, in turn transforming their dwelling practices as well as their hunting. As former settlements, now towns, contain ever larger numbers of rural period people in one place, many of whom are dying younger in greater numbers than ever before, Kredaicha flock there, drawn by and bringing more death. Each individual death, as the fact that so many of them occur, is a tragedy lacking reasonable explanation. Why, one might ask, do indigenous people in one of the wealthiest nations on earth die so much younger of preventable diseases, substance misuse, accidents, and murders in such cruel numbers? That reminds me of of the Lamashtu thing a little bit, where it's a little bit of a cultural explanation or coping mechanism yeah for for this sort of unfathomable tragedy yeah it's like this this attempt to fathom something unfathomable because when you have like deeply systemic problems it's something that is in a way is very real yeah and it's not to say that that these populations don't understand that the the death rates are directly related to this sort of systematic erasure of their culture and and sort of the cramming them into smaller spaces and you know taking their their lands away it's not that they don't understand that but the i think what this author is saying is that the kredacha sort of puts a name to it it yeah. lets them there's like the emotional toll yeah exactly um, that and so it's it's sort of this was like this made me think about the um, like the opioid epidemic here Mm-hmm. And how, like, people here, like, they go through their lives and you see, like, these actions that feel like they're made of free will. Uh, like, we see, like, the cum- the cumulative effect of the opioid crisis is much, much greater than what we see to be decisions and choices and pressures. Yeah, no, it's ripples outward from the, yeah. those things. And so I, I think it's, I thought that was really, like, a really fascinating take on how um and and so it seems in other um in other groups there is a a human and a non-human version so there's like the ritual executioner and then like sort of the monstrous executioner Mm -hmm. and so um i had i found i sent this to you um dreamings and and place so like aboriginal monsters and their meanings it's on the conversation and i love we have post a lot of stuff from the conversation but it's usually um subject matter experts that are writing 
very accessible treatments of their research. Um, and so you can learn about other monsters of Aboriginal groups. Cool. And, and then I also found the entire book that this chapter comes from, Places and Spaces of Monstrosity. Also, if you're near Northern Virginia, you can go check out the only museum dedicated to Indigenous Australian art outside of Australia. I mean, I would like to. It's yes. at, yeah, it's at the University of Virginia. It's the Kluge Ruhe Collection. Kluge Ruhe, <laughs> two German names. Yeah. Collection at the University of Virginia. Um, and so they have a permanent collection of more than 1,900 works. And that is many works. Yeah. And they have indigenous artists in residence. They do film festivals. And they have a really great website where you can explore their collection. Great. And we'll, I was we'll link poke- to that. Yeah, I know. Of all places, UVA. That was super interesting. Thank you. I thought so. I'm really glad that you included Australia in this episode because I've been feeling like we've been a little bit West heavy, sort of Europe and the Americas heavy. And so I wanted something a little bit different from that. And I wasn't sure what you were going to do. So this next bit comes from a little bit farther East than we have been. And it's a real departure from casually tossing a tablet into a bath. So I'm going to tell you, Amber, about curses from Javanese royal inscriptions. And I want to talk about them because they are the most fascinating, formal, elaborate, governmental bonkers thing I've ever come across. And I need everyone to know about them. So I need everyone to know about these things. And so I'm going to tell you about them. And then we're going to put that on the Internet. (laughs) Good meeting. Yeah, that's how we do. (laughs) Meeting adjourned. Okay, so we are in the 13th through 15th centuries CE in Java, Indonesia, which is in the Indian Ocean, just north northwest of Australia, where we just were. So so there we are. And Found these it. are yep, got it. These are official curses, capital O, capital C, state sanctioned. And we know about them from inscriptions in bronze or stone, and they're they're very formulaic. And to me, because I'm completely external to the cultural context. They are almost comically formulaic, but these were probably a very big deal and no joke to the 14th century-ish Javanese. But to me, an outsider, the fact that something exists that are government curse documents, it it just hits me in the funny bone a little bit. But that doesn't sound that unlike the... um, the Hammurabi Codex. It's not, and it is in fact very much related sort of in in format. These curse inscriptions come along with state edicts, so declarations of new laws. And the curses are there to say, hey, here's what's going to happen to you if you violate the conditions of this new rule. And so these curse texts were often accompanied by some sort of ritual and then witnessed by legit witnesses who would then have their names and titles inscribed for posterity. You'll see that it, it's very, very official, lots of names and titles and dates and stuff. Um, And it went along with various actions like the breaking of an egg, the stripping of fronds off of a fern, slitting the throat of a chicken, so like really escalating from like fern damage, or cutting the head off of a frog, representing the horrible things that would happen to anybody who broke the terms of the royal edict. So we'll, we'll get to consequences in a little bit. Hang on, gird your loins. Um, The inscriptions themselves typically open with a very complex description of the date, mentioning the year, the month, the ruler, and the relevant day of the seven, six, and five-day weeks. And I'm quoting here from this article by the the very, very competent scholar whose name we giggled at, but um, it's a 2001 article by Jan van den Verdunk, and I 
apologize to all Dutch listeners. I tried really hard. Um, and it's called Curses in Javanese Royal Inscriptions from the Singhasari Majapahit period, AD 1222 to 1486. And it, it says, it, so it mentions, the inscriptions mention the year, the month, and quote, the relevant day of the seven, six, and five-day weeks, often supplemented with astronomical data. So clearly I need to learn more about Javanese time and date keeping because that sounds very interesting, but it's not about curses. So I'm gonna keep going. This date is followed by the complete title or name of the ruler or high official who issued the edict, followed in turn by the announcement that the order accordingly has been received with all due respect by a group of dignitaries, dot, 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 and then so on and so forth with a lot of other designations and specifications with every little detail and issue of rank of all the dignitaries and witnesses accounted for. So the curses, stripped of their institutional language, contain some pretty simple elements. So number one. A description of the preparations for the curse. So like the actual physical things that were done for the ritual. Number two, an invocation of particular gods and other supernatural beings who are all seeing and will definitely catch you breaking this rule if you break it. Number three, a warning to anyone who might get the urge to somehow violate the new rule, sometimes with a list of potential offenders. So like, like by name? Yeah. So like we know this guy is going to have the urge to not do this thing that we're telling you to do. Looking at you, Steve. Oh, that's so rude. Number four, a mention, sometimes brief, sometimes almost comically elaborate, of the horrible punishments that await offenders. And then the whole thing wraps up with some formulaic Sanskrit words or phrases to close out the ceremony. This might include the sacred syllable om, or the phrase let it be successful, it being the curse, um, or some other uh, Sanskrit phrases. Here is an example of a curse given in this article by the author, of the, and it's an example of this formula. So I skipped all the formalities at the beginning, so this podcast is not going to be three hours long, um, and I'm diving right into the consequences. So the offense in this particular instance is, as far as I could gather, not respecting the autonomy of a particular landholder's property. So a lot of this article was in either Dutch or transliterated Javanese, so I did my best. Here we go. If anyone doesn't do this thing that we're telling everybody to do, they will suffer the consequences of their actions. And now we're invoking some gods. You gods, you must kill them. They must be killed by you. If they set out on a journey... When they pass through open fields, they shall be bitten by poisonous snakes. In the forest, they shall step over banyan tree roots. I'll explain that at the end. They shall be attacked by tigers. In the water, they shall be devoured by crocodiles. In the sea, they shall be bitten by ferocious fish, specifically swordfish and then other ones I don't know because their names are in Javanese. And sea snakes. When they go down a mountain, they shall be smashed onto jagged rocks. They shall fall down rocky ravines. They shall go hurtling down. They shall be crushed, broken to pieces. If they go out during a shower of rain, may they be struck by lightning. If they remain at home, may they be struck by the fire of the thunderbolt. On the battlefield, you know what? I'm just going to simplify this and say, on the battlefield, may they die repeatedly and in unspeakably awful ways. But this is where Churchill got that We speech. will fight them on the beaches. <laughs> They will be smashed. Their eyes will be poked out. They will have wedgies for days. Yeah. And so it wraps up with, this is what will happen to those who misbehave. It will be seen by the holy 13 witnesses. So be it. Let it be successful. 
that bit about the banyan tree roots, that's interpreted as, um, so banyan trees have these incredible spreading networks of tree roots. And there's sort of this mythology that's mentioned in the article that if you start stepping over banyan tree roots, you get confused all of a sudden and you get disoriented and you just keep going in circles and circles and circles around the banyan tree until you die. Gosh. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is about the the architecture of those roots that uh, makes people lose it, but uh, careful if you're under a banyan tree, I guess. And don't break the rules in Java. Thank you all for listening. Um, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Please and thank you, uh, preferably in units of five stars or more. But um, that's really how we get um, lists on Apple Podcasts to notice us and to put us up there and help us get more listeners. So if you could just take a few minutes, drop us a review, drop us a rating, we would super duper appreciate it. Yeah. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. And you can also find us on Facebook. We're there at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And you can find all of the social media together at thedirtpod.com. Yeah, if you want to send us an email, you can do that. We are thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. If emails aren't enough for you and you want to kick us some bones, you can do so by she, supporting she, us she means, on... She means money. Don't send us bones. Don't, do not send us bones. Uh, support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single-time donor. Either way, we'd be extremely grateful. And that's over at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. And if you want to find out what we want to do with those bones, we have an explanation of all of our plans uh, over at thedirtpod.com slash goals. Thanks for listening. Ooh. Bye. Bye. Bye.